All right, well, good evening. Good evening. I hope everyone is doing well tonight. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so very much for this opportunity. I know some of you have traveled from some distance, and uh, thank you very much for doing that. I trust that this will be a time of enrichment for all of us as we go into the Word of God. And uh, Pastor Steve, I want to thank you for opening up your pulpit to me. It's an honor and a joy to be here with you, for both Kathy and me to be here with you this weekend. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, it is only by your grace that we are here. It is, it is only by your sovereign provision that, that, um, that we can even draw our next breath. And Lord, we thank you that you have blessed us in the ways that you have and in uh, so many ways that we uh, don't even see, don't even take notice of. But Lord, you've blessed us so richly. We thank you for the freedom that we have to gather here as believers, no fear of of overt persecution. And uh, Lord, we know that many of our brothers and sisters, even as we speak right now, are facing that. And uh, we pray for them. We pray that your spirit would strengthen them and that you would continue to be honored and glorified in their witness. Uh, so Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would sanctify us in the truth of your word. We pray that we would hold your truth above all things, Lord, above our preconceptions, before our preferences, before our emotions, uh, and before and above our traditions. And uh, so, Lord, we, we look to your word as we look to you to know you. And we pray that as our knowledge of you is deepened, that you would deepen our love for you. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, many of you are aware already of kind of what we will be looking at in this seminar together. It is entitled, A Call for Discernment. And a call for discernment is a biblical critique of what is properly known as the Word of Faith movement. It's more commonly referred to as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, the name it and claim it gospel. Basically, the doctrine that says it is always God's will for a Christian to be wealthy, and it is always God's will for a Christian to be physically healed. We should never be sick. Or if we do get sick, we can have healing. God is obligated to give us healing as, well, as long as we use the right words and as long as we have enough faith, God will grant us healing and we can... Um, enact our healing, if you will, even from our own positive confessions and using the force of faith, as they call it. This theology dominates what we see today on Christian cable and satellite television. If you've ever watched TBN, the Inspiration Network, Daystar, Lycia Broadcasting, the Word Network, you've seen this stuff. Uh, it is almost everything that is on Christian television. And I tell people often that you can you can get an idea of the state of Christianity, quote-unquote, by looking at what's on Christian television. Because all Christian television is is a function of supply and demand. They put on what makes them money. And if there was a demand for solid teaching, you would see guys like John MacArthur and, you know, Alistair Begg and, you know, some of these 
good, solid guys who do rightly divide the word of truth. But is that what you see on Christian television? No. No, because the truth is devastating to their bottom line. And unfortunately, few people want the truth. Some do. Some do. But vast majority of people do not. And so you get a pretty good feel for the state of professing Christianity in any way simply by looking on Christian television. All it is is a function of supply and demand. Whatever people are demanding, that's what they supply. And uh, so we will be looking at the word faith movement in, in great detail as we progress beginning tomorrow. We'll be looking at people like Benny Hinn, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, uh, Joseph Prince. We'll be looking at all these individuals. And just briefly, my first exposure to this movement did come as a teenager when a neighbor of mine told me that God had spoken to him and told him that it, I was going to be healed of my cerebral palsy as long as I had enough faith. And at age 16, that's what I wanted. I thought I was a Christian, was not a Christian. Uh, but the fact that I wanted to go see faith healers was a good indication in and of itself that, that a genuine conversion had not yet taken place in my life. But at any rate, that was kind of my first exposure to the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement. I had no idea that it was even an organized movement, but that's how I first became aware of it and exposed to it. And so anyway, uh, that's just a little bit of background information. And, and we won't be looking at word of faith too much tonight per se. Uh, what I want us to do tonight is really look at discernment in general. The duty of discernment, and uh, many of you have an outline. That's a little bit of an, a dated outline. I, the, the current one somehow got corrupted. The file got corrupted, so we won't follow exactly what you see there, but it'll, it'll kind of suffice. But uh, I want us to look at discernment in general. What does the Bible have to say about discernment? Why is discernment so important? How do you get discernment and things like this? And also, uh, towards the end of the service, we'll be looking at some of the common objections that people raise when we exercise discernment, when we warn people about false doctrine. We'll look at some of the common objections, and then we will answer those objections biblically. So, what does discernment mean? Discernment, according to Noah Webster, is the quality of being able to grasp or comprehend what is obscure, and it stresses the power to distinguish or select what is true or appropriate. This is the dictionary definition. And so discernment involves being able to uh, sift through truth from error, right from wrong. The Bible also in, employs terms for discernment. The primary word in the Hebrew in our Old Testament is the word ben. And ben means insight, understanding. It means to separate things from one another at their points of difference in order to make a distinction. And Ben is used some 250 times throughout the Old Testament. So discernment is a very prominent theme in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament as well. The primary Greek word in the New Testament that we would look at in the noun form is the word diacrisis. And diacrisis means a distinguishing, a clear discrimination, judging. A lot of people think, oh, well, we shouldn't judge people. We shouldn't judge as Christians. But the Bible indicates something different, as we'll look at in a little bit. And in the verb form of this same word is the word anachrono. It means to distinguish, 
to separate out to test. Dear friends, we are to test all things. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Paul says we are to test all things. And that's not there just to take up the white spaces. We are to test all things. We are to test ourselves. We are to examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. Someone who is truly born again will bear fruits of God's working in his or her life. So we are to examine ourselves even. We are to examine our traditions. And uh, sometimes we, we pick on the Catholics for having their traditions and elevating their traditions to the same authoritative level as Scripture. And that's good. We should do that because it is... Uh, false it is erroneous it does lead people astray it is blasphemous to do that but uh, sometimes we get on our high horse a little bit and what we don't realize is that even as um, supposedly conservative uh, evangelical Christians a lot of times we do the same thing we'll elevate our own church traditions to the same authoritative level as that of scripture too we don't like to think about it but but we do we are to test all things all things by the word of God. Dear friends, the reason discernment is so vitally important, one of the reasons, is that not everything that false teachers teach is false. Some of it is right. You know, the biggest threat to Christianity from a spiritual standpoint, theological standpoint, is not from Buddhism, it's not from Islam, it's not from men flying airplanes of the World Trade Towers. That's not the biggest threat to Christianity. It's not suicide bombers. It's people who profess to be within Christianity. Those who have some truth, but mixed in with that truth is error, heresy. And it does not take much poison to corrupt the entire thing. I often give the illustration of water, a glass of water, a little bottle of water. This water is fine, but just put in a little bit of strychnine into this water. Let it dissolve. Then, should you drink it? Absolutely not. It would kill you. It would kill me. A little bit of poison does a great deal of harm. There is a little bit of truth in what you will hear Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland teach or any false teacher teach who claims to be a Christian. There will be some truth there, but mixed in with that truth will be poison. And that is why we must have discernment. Discernment is not an option for the Christian. It's not an option. It is a duty. It is all of our responsibilities to exercise discernment. Now, there is a spiritual gift of discernment. Some people, upon their conversion, the Holy Spirit gives them the gift of discernment. And for some Christians, discernment comes very naturally, or very supernaturally, if you will. It's their gift. Now, for most of us, we don't have the gift of discernment. But... Just because it may not be your gift or my gift, that's not an excuse not to exercise discernment. Okay? You may not have the gift of mercy as your primary spiritual gift, but guess what? We can all exercise mercy, right? We can all show people mercy. So it's a cop-out to say, oh, well, discernment, that's just not my spiritual gift. I'm going to leave that for somebody else who does have the gift. I'm not going to worry about it. That's a cop-out. That, that's an excuse, we should all exercise discernment. It's not an option. It's a mandate. It is our duty as believers to exercise discernment. The passage which I've chosen is kind of the theme verse for this seminar 
is Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Undoubtedly, many of you are already familiar with this passage. For these Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, searching the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. The apostle Paul and Silas were out preaching the gospel, preaching Jesus as the one who was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament Messianic prophecies. They came to Thessalonica. They did not have a warm reception there at all. So they left Thessalonica. They came to the city of Berea. And in Berea, Paul and Silas were received quite well, as was their message. And notice that the Bible says that the Bereans were considered more noble. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why were the Bereans considered more noble? Well, I think we have three clues in this one text of Scripture. Number one, the Bereans were considered noble because they studied the law. They were students of the Word of God. Dear ones, we must be good students of God's Word. God has revealed Himself to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, and we have a perfect, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient record of that in His Word. And we cannot know God apart from knowing His Word. And so we must be good students of the Word of God. And a lot of people today, you may have heard something similar to this. A lot of people today kind of have this attitude. They'll say, well, well, I don't need doctrine. I don't need theology. I just love Jesus. That is a foolish statement. That is a foolish statement. Dear friends, if we love Jesus as much as we profess to love him... We will want to get to know Him. And the only way to get to know Him is by knowing Him in His Word. And it is sound doctrine. It is right theology that deepens our knowledge of Christ. And when our knowledge of Christ is deepened, that enables our love for Christ to be deepened. And so for all these people running around who think just, I mean, today, nowadays, doctrine and theology, they have almost become bad words. You know, that's just for the heady folks. That's just for the Bible scholars up in their ivory towers, you know. No, no. If, if we are truly regenerate, we should want to know sound doctrine, not want to know sound theology. Because that is how we get to, to know the Savior more and to know Him rightly. We should want to study him. So many people today are basing their theology and basing their salvation, by the way, on their emotions and their feelings and observations sometimes. How they think things ought to be. doesn't matter how we think things ought to be. We are fallen creatures and our reasoning is fallen. We have got to know God as he has revealed himself to us in his Word. We must study His Word. And most professing Christians today, they are all too content to maybe show up on Sunday morning, may or may not bring their Bibles with them. But chances are, you know, during the week, they don't even pick their Bibles up. Or they just get some little 
tidbit off of uh, you know watching Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, or reading Chicken Soup for the Soul and think they're <laughs> getting their spiritual nourishment. If that's your spiritual nourishment, you're starving. We have got to know Christ by knowing Him in His Word. And you know what's a pretty good barometer of how much you truly love Christ when you stop and think about how much do I really want to get to know Him by knowing Him in His Word. And men, I'm going to address you for just a minute. And uh, some of you may make kind of uncomfortable because I'm going to say this in front of your wives. Um, men, it is our responsibility to be the spiritual leaders in our home. It's our responsibility to be the spiritual leaders in our home. And men, being the spiritual leader in your home does not mean simply taking your family to church on Sunday morning. That is not being the spiritual leader in your home. Do you know studies show, and this, these numbers are a little bit difficult to quantify in hard numbers, but a number of studies out there show that somewhere between 75, 80, even 85% of children who are raised in professing Christian homes and who go to church regularly and they make, quote-unquote, decisions for Christ at very early ages and they get baptized and they're raised in church, once they grow up and they leave home, and they go off to college or they start their own adult lives, once they leave home, guess what else they're leaving? They're leaving the church. And they're not coming back. Oh, but, but they got saved. You know, they, they asked Jesus into their heart. They got saved. They, they got baptized. They may have been baptized, but they were not truly saved. Because one who is truly saved, truly regenerate in Christ, that person may stray from the Lord for a season. But if you truly belong to Christ and you stray from Him, guess what? He will discipline you. Hebrews chapter 12. He will discipline you and He will bring you back. So what we're seeing is that all these children who are making professions of faith and getting baptized but they grow up and they leave the church and they're not coming back and there's no evidence of conversion in their life no repentance from sin no grieving over sin uh, no love for the word they were not saved and men the responsibility of this at least in part in large part lies at our feet because what has happened today is that the vast majority of professing Christian men, we have begun to export our spiritual responsibilities to the Sunday school teacher or to the youth group leader. And we think our kids are getting everything they need in Sunday school and the youth group. No, they're not. Men, it is our responsibility to teach the Word of God to our wives and to our children. Biblical instruction doesn't begin in the Sunday school class. It begins at home. This is God speaking. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your children. 
talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Men, are you doing this? Are you teaching the Word of God to your families, to your wives, to your children? Men, it is not the Sunday school teacher's job to teach your kids the Bible. I'm not against Sunday school, but Sunday school is supplemental at best. It's supplemental. It's not the youth group leader's job to teach your teenagers the Word of God. It's your job. It's my job. The Sunday school teacher, the youth group leader, cannot do what God has designed you to do. You just can't. God has designed it so it's your job and you will be the one who is most effective at doing that. Now, it is, it is possible for a godly Christian man to do everything right and to teach the Word of God to his children. It is possible that even if he does everything right, those children grow up and they still walk away from Christ. Certainly that can happen. But men, you're not responsible Necessarily, so much for the outcome. It is your responsibility to do it. And then you trust God for the results. But it's our responsibility to do it. And we get the blessing from being obedient, whatever that looks like. Teach the Word of God to your wives, to your children, model it in your own life, protect your marriages. That's being the spiritual leader in the home. Not just showing up to church on Sunday morning. Also, the Bereans were considered noble because they received the gospel with ready, engaged minds. One of the problems with the word faith movement and indeed just about every false doctrinal system is that they actually encourage people to disengage their minds when it comes to things of God. They'll say, well, if you really want to go deep with God, if you want to get to the deep, secret, hidden, mysterious things of God, you've got to disengage your mind. Put the old noodle up here and park. Is that what the Bible tells us to do? Absolutely not. Quite the opposite. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. He gave us a mind for a reason. He wants us to use it. Also, the Bereans were considered noble because they tested what they heard by the Scriptures. Yes, they received Paul and Silas. Yes, they eagerly received what they were teaching. But notice, they did not take what Paul and Silas were teaching to them at face value. It says they searched the Scriptures to see if these things were so. To see if what Paul and Silas were preaching about Jesus really did plumb with the Old Testament Messianic prophecies. I would encourage you not to take what a preacher preaches to you at face value. Search the scriptures to see if these things are so. I would encourage you not to take what I teach you over the next uh, couple, of, couple of days at face value. Search the scriptures to see if these things are really so. I'm not the authority. No man is the authority. God's word is is God's word is why do we need discernment we need discernment 
so that we will not be like little children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. Dear friends, we are living in a day and age in which there are more and more winds of doctrine blowing about us. These winds of doctrine are blowing from every direction, blowing in every direction. There are many winds of doctrine swirling about each and every one of us. And if we do not have discernment, if we are not grounded in what we believe, if we do not know what we believe and know why we believe it, then we will be like little children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine that comes along. We need to be grounded. We need to know the Word of God. We need to be sanctified in the truth of God's Word, know what we believe, know why we believe it, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And if we are not, we will be easily tossed about by every wind of doctrine that comes along. You know... One of the uh, favorite groups that Mormons like to do their own twisted version of evangelism to. You know who Mormons really love to talk to? Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist. There's a couple of studies out there that show one of the richest mining fields for Mormon evangelism, to, to use that term, unfortunately, and connected with the cult. Southern Baptist. Southern Baptists are supposed to be people of the book, you know. And I come from a Southern Baptist background, you know. Uh, People of the book, people of the Bible. But a lot of Southern Baptists and a lot of professing Christians in general know just enough Bible to be dangerous. Just enough to be dangerous. We may at some level know what we believe, but we really don't know why we believe it. You know, you ask a lot of people, Today, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe the Bible? Well, I was raised that way. Well, bless your heart. I hope you got a better answer than that. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. If we don't, we will be tossed to and fro. If not by Mormonism, by word of faith, charismatic stuff, you know, we'll be tossed to and fro. Um, And notice, and I'm going to chase a rabbit here again just a little bit. Notice, to whom does the Apostle Paul compare those people who are easily tossed to and fro? Children. Children. The Apostle Paul is writing, excuse me, is writing under the divine inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. And under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit... He compares those people who are easily tossed to and fro to children. There is nothing in the Bible by mistake. Children, by their nature, are very easily tossed to and fro. Parents, you know this. You can tell a little child just about anything you want to tell him, and he or she is going to believe it. They're very trusting. They don't have the capacity to think abstractly. They think very concretely. They're very trusting and they'll believe just about whatever you tell them. And what captures their heart one week may be completely disinteresting to them the next week. They're easily tossed to and fro. Parents, be very, very, very careful when your little six, seven, eight, nine year old child comes up to you and says, 
Mommy and Daddy, I've just been saved. I've I've just asked Jesus into my heart. I want to ask Jesus into my heart. Be very careful. When you look through the language of salvation in the New Testament, it is rather adult-sounding language, is it not? Deny yourself. How many little kids do you know who do that? Take up the cross. And dear friends, when Jesus said take up the cross 2,000 years ago, people knew what he meant. Very few people know today. 2,000 years ago, they knew it because they had seen crosses in action. Taking up the cross wasn't just a, you know, a, a rah, rah, shish, boom, bob, let's just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make it through some tough times. Jesus was saying, you have to be willing to die. You have to be willing to die for the gospel if called upon to do so. How many little kids you know are really ready to do that? Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says, whoever does not hate his own father, mother, sister, wives, or wife, brothers, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. That's a high bar. Now, is Jesus saying we literally have to hate our own family members in order to be saved? No, but what he is saying is that if we truly belong to Christ, then we should have a love for Christ that is so deep, that is so unconditional, that is so uh, self-denying, that by comparison, the love that we have even for our own family members, by comparison, would look like hatred. That's a high bar. That is rather adult-sounding language. Now, am I saying that God cannot save a child? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not even saying that on occasion He doesn't. But I am going to say this. He is not doing it nearly as often as what our baptismal records indicate. Dear friends, there's a big difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. I was, quote unquote, saved when I was seven years old. And I knew the right answers. You know, I'd been raised in church, I went to Sunday school, I, I knew the right answers. And if you had asked me when I was seven years old, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did. I believed in Santa Claus too. He was real. He came to see me every Christmas. Big difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. I had a childish faith. A childlike faith is a faith that that recognizes we are completely broken and undone and ruined before a holy God. And there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Just as a little child cannot take care of himself physically, a little kid can't go out and hold down a job and pay the mortgage, pay the rent, you know, buy the groceries. And A little child can't do that, completely dependent upon his or her parents. We are completely and utterly helpless, spiritually speaking, on our own. Big difference between a childlike faith and a childish 
faith. Parents, be very careful. Don't discourage your children. Teach them the gospel. Teach them about repentance and about faith in Christ. Absolutely. Cultivate that in your children. Don't discourage them. Encourage them. But if your child professes faith, professes faith in Christ, parents, watch them. Watch them. There's no rush to get them to the baptistry. If God saves your child, they're not going to lose their salvation. Your child is not going to lose his or her salvation if you don't get him in the baptistry the very next Sunday. Watch them. You know what's interesting about salvation, about conversion? Think about this. Conversion should look basically the same in everyone regardless of their age. Regardless of the age. Whether we're talking 8 or 80. Conversion should basically look the same. Someone who God regenerates, there should be some evidences of that regeneration. There should be a godly sorrow over sin. Not just an intellectual assent. A godly sorrow over sin. A hunger for the Word of God. Doesn't mean they have to understand everything. Doesn't mean that, you know, uh, right upon conversion that a person's got to be able to give you, you know, outline all of their, the minutia of their eschatology and, and go into a, a, a full-fledged discourse between the differences between imputed and infused righteousness and flesh that out and... We're not talking about that. But there should be a hunger. There should be a desire to learn. There should be a desire to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be a hunger for the Word of God. There should be a, a, a love for the brethren. There should be a love for the brethren. These things should be in place. There should be a change. If there's no change, conversion hasn't taken place. And so, whether we're talking about 8 or 80, these things should be in place. Be very careful. If your child professes faith in Christ, continue to teach them the gospel. Continue to teach the word to them and watch them. See if they bear fruit of conversion having taken place. If conversion has taken place, there will be some. Watch them. Wait. Be very careful. Why do we need discernment? We need discernment because it is a mark of spiritual maturity. The writer of Hebrews chapter 5 says this, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Why was it hard to explain? Because the content was so difficult? No, because his hearers had become dull of hearing. His, his readers had become dull of hearing. And he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to do what? To discern good and evil. One of the marks, one of the marks of a mature Christian is a discerning Christian. And if there is a lack of spiritual discernment in a person's life, 
that's an indication that either that person is very immature, is immature in Christ, or maybe that person is not yet truly saved. You cannot have maturity in Christ and lack discernment at the same time, okay? You cannot have a mature Christian who is an undiscerning Christian, okay? Because discernment is one of the marks, one of the marks of a mature believer. Now, we're not talking about a brand new Christian. You know, we're not talking about somebody who is just saved and they come with little, if any, background in, in uh, Bible knowledge or Bible training. You know, they're brand new, clean slate, brand new, you know, and they're just learning. We're not talking about these folks. But for people who have been saved, professing Christians for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they have no, seemingly no discernment, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Because one of the patterns that we should see in a Christian's life is the longer that person is a Christian, the more he understands, the more knowledge of the Word of God he has, that knowledge informs our decisions, it informs our theology, and over time, there's an increasing pattern of discernment. And so for people who say they've been a Christian for decades, they say, oh, yeah, you know, you, not too long ago I, I had a, um, a guy, he and his wife emailed me. They said, we are in our 70s. So we've we've been our, we've been Christians almost our entire lives. We're in our seventies, and we love Joel Osteen. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Now, a little disclaimer here: you can have some discernment. You can have some theological discernment and not even be a Christian. That is possible. It, it was me for vast majority of my life. You can have some pockets of discernment. You can have some head knowledge and not even be truly regenerate. But if you are truly saved, you cannot be mature in Christ and lack discernment. If you lack discernment, there is something wrong. Okay, Examine yourself. See if you're truly in the faith. How important is discernment? This is a very interesting passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 1. Paul writes, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. Pause here for just a second. You know, sometimes God's most fearful acts of judgment is not fire, not brimstone, not earthquakes and all this stuff. Sometimes God's most fearful acts of judgment is when he gives people over. When he gives them over, kind of a passive thing, when he lifts his hands and gives them over to a debased mind. When God gives someone over, there is no hope. Sometimes that is God's most fearsome act of judgment. To do those things which are not fitting. And watch this list of sins. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whisperers, gossipers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, 
undiscerning? Untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Notice that in this list of horrific sins, sins that many of us, I mean, easily recognizable, that's sinful, that's bad. Horrific sins, right in the middle of this list, undiscerning. Is that not sobering? Because, you see, a lack of discernment, what that tells us, now again, we're not talking about Baby Christians, you know, young Christians with little to no background in training in the Bible. We're not talking about these folks. But for people who claim to have been Christians for years and years and years, and they lack discernment, what that says is, is that they lack a knowledge of the Word of God. They are not students of God's Word. And if they are not students of God's Word, if they do not hunger for the Word of God, That's an indication that they do not genuinely have a love for God. It's a sin. It is just as sinful to lack discernment as it is to be engaging in all these other horrific sins. Right in the same list. That is a sobering passage of Scripture. Also, we need discernment because the last days will be marked... By unsound doctrine. The Apostle Paul says this. For the time will come when people will no longer endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They shall turn away their ears from the truth. And shall turn aside to fables. Paul tells us that the time will come when people will no longer endure sound doctrine. And that is exactly where so much of the professing Christian churches. Paul's not talking here about genuine Christians, professing Christians. Time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And that's where most people are today. Most professing Christians don't want to come to church and hear anything about sin, righteousness, repentance, denial of self. Most people today just want to come to church and they want to be told what they want to hear. They want to be told that they can have their best life now. They can have their purpose-driven life. God's going to give them a a nicer home and a better job and and a nice car, and he's going to help them to lose weight the Jesus way and just bless their socks off. Do all these wonderful things for them. Me, me, me. But they don't want to hear anything about sin, denial of self, taking up the cross. They just want to have their ears tickled. They don't want... You know, the Bible is great as long as it doesn't get inconvenient. Water it down for me. Don't put any demands on me. I don't want that sound doctrine. I want to have my ears tickled. And I would submit that the most prominent ear tickler of our day today, by no means the only one, but the most prominent is Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen is a pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas the largest, quote-unquote, evangelical church in the United States of America. Joel Osteen, you may recall, got in a lot of hot water back in the year 2005 when he was being interviewed by Larry King on his program, Larry King Live. 
And in that interview, and I've got the transcript, I've got the video, but for time's sake, many of you are already aware of this. Uh, in that interview, Joel Osteen repeatedly denied the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as God's only mean for, means uh, for salvation. Could not, when, Joel Osteen, when uh, Larry King asked him if Jesus was the only way, Joel Osteen either would not or could not answer the question. And he took a lot of heat for that. Rightly so. You know, and he offered this disclaimer. He took, up, he took so much criticism, he had to put this little apology on his website. You know, and when you read the apology, it was pretty good in and of itself. Now, I found out not too long ago that Joel Osteen actually hired a PR firm to help him write that apology. And that actually kind of is um, evident by the next video clip I'm going to show you. This was the year 2005 when he blew the interview with Larry King. Let me show you an interview from uh, 2009, four years later. Okay, four years later. And you would think through all the controversy he would have learned his lesson, right? Watch this from uh, 2009, Joel Osteen being interviewed by Glenn Beck. Joel Osteen is the senior pastor at Lakewood Church, and he joins me now. Hello, Joel. How are you, sir? Hey, Glenn. Let that be done. I mean, I got a lot of mail having you on. People said to me, well, he's denied Jesus Christ in the gospel. And I'm thinking to myself, I've talked to him. I know him. He, I mean, you're very rooted in the gospel. Again, I don't know. I think some people are so, um, there's people that are just very passionate about what they believe, and they're, they won't uh, stay open to anything else. And, you know, of course I believe in, in Christ as the Savior and all, but, you know, I, th I think too, Glenn, I've spent a lot of time in India, you know. I've been with a lot of Hindu people. They're nice, kind, you know, people that love God as well. Did you catch that? Now, Glenn Beck actually referenced he alluded to the interview that he did with Larry King back in 2005. That's what he was alluding to. And even knowing that, Joel Osteen went a step further. Did you catch what he said? He said, well, Glenn, you know, I've been to India with my father. I've seen those Hindu people. They're nice, kind people who love God as well. Friends, some Hindus may be nice, they may be kind, but they're not Christians. Now, some Hindus are not nice and kind. They'll kill you if you profess faith in Christ. But regardless, they do not love God. Hindus do not love God. You can't not love someone who you do not know. And Hindus do not know God. They do not know Him. They do not love Him. And Joel Osteen is doing no one any favors by telling the world that Hindus love God. Especially not the Hindus. So Joel Osteen continues to deny that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And Joel Osteen, therefore, is a false teacher. He is a false teacher. He smiles a lot. You know, and he's, a lot of people like him. Why? Because he tickles their ears. But he is a false teacher just as much as is Benny Hinn. And I would say more dangerous than Benny Hinn. This is a pretty good little snapshot into Joel Osteen's overall theological framework, loose though it may be. Watch this video clip from Joel Osteen, and then we'll be Bereans, and we'll see if these things are true. In 
dealing with people for several years, thousands of people, one thing I can tell you is 99.9% of people are not bad people. They may make poor choices, but deep down, they've got a good heart. Joel Osteen says that one thing he can tell us is that 99.9% of people are not bad people. Well, what does the Bible have to say about this? There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good, no, not one. Friends, 99.9% of people are not good people. 100% of people are bad people. You're a bad person. You are. I'm a bad person. Now, most people will openly profess their goodness because what we like to do, we like to compare ourselves to other people. And if I were to compare myself to Osama bin Laden, Pol Pot, Benito Mussolini, Hitler, I'm a pretty good old boy. (laughs) A little more recent maybe a little closer to home, Adam Lanza, Newtown, Connecticut. Oh, I would never do anything like that. You think you would never do anything like that if it were not for God's restraining Holy Spirit? Yes, you could. So could I. Let me say that again. If it were not for God's Holy Spirit restraining us, each and every one of you in here, including myself, we are fully capable of doing exactly what Adam Lanza did. But by the grace of God, there go we. Let's not underestimate sin. There is none righteous. Friends, God does not evaluate our goodness by comparing us to Hitler or Adam Lanza. He evaluates our goodness by comparing us to himself. And none of us compared to the holiness of God are good. We have all broken the laws of God. We are wretched, vile sinners, every last one of us. There's none good. And what of this when Joel Osteen says, they may make poor choices, but deep down, they've got a good heart. Well, Jeremiah seems to think otherwise. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately what? Wicked. Who can know it? I heard a preacher one time encourage his entire congregation to, quote, follow your hearts. Please don't do that. (laughs) Don't follow your heart. Your heart will deceive you. Your heart is wicked. Don't follow your heart. Live in obedience to the Word of God. Live in obedience to the Word of God. Joel Osteen's message is profoundly, profoundly unbiblical. Now, I want to be an equal opportunity critiquer. It's not just the word faith folks who are engaging in um, errant doctrine and watering down the gospel. Uh, some of the people who do this are supposed to be doctrinally sound, coming from doctrinally sound circles. This from 
Ed Young Jr., whose father was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. What an opportunity to be in this phenomenal worship center. It's the dream of every pastor to, to walk up these steps and hit this platform. Look at this place. Isn't it amazing what God has done? I mean, the ceiling, the, the, the crowd, the, the choir. This is totally and completely off the chain. Hey, man. Joel Osteen. Hey, thank you. Thanks for coming by, Ed. It's great thank to have you. you. This place is unreal. Oh, man, God's blessed us. And we love Ed and Lisa and appreciate what y'all are doing. All the best to you guys. We heard from Joel right here. It's in you. Amen. There's Ed Young Jr., you know, Southern Baptist preacher. And I, did you notice the first thing he said? He, he's walking into this huge cavernous, quote-unquote, sanctuary, and he says, look at this place. He says, it's the dream of every pastor to walk up these steps. You know what? I say this. I don't say this irreverently. I say this with all reverence. Thank God it is not the dream of every pastor to have a quote-unquote church like that. It's the dream of most pastors maybe. But thank God it is not the dream of every pastor to have a big church, quote-unquote church, and to lead so many people astray. Dear friends, whether we're talking about Lakewood Church or whether we're talking about any number of other Churches out there who preach a watered-down gospel, who do not preach repentance, who do not preach the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. These are not churches. Goat farms, maybe. Social clubs. They're not churches. And Ed Young Jr., partnering with Joel Osteen and other word faith preachers, Rod Parsley and T.D. Jakes and others, holding hands with false teachers. And I would submit he is a false teacher himself. Now, what we're doing here is not real popular with a lot of folks. And when we exercise discernment and when we teach sound doctrine and when we point out errant doctrine, we will be criticized for that. Okay? It will come. And if somebody's not criticizing you, you're... You're not doing something right. But let's look at some of the more common criticisms that will come our way, and uh, we will answer them biblically. Judge not. Judge not, lest ye be judged, one of the most often misquoted, taken out of context passages in all of God's Word. Jesus does indeed tell us not to judge, but the kind of judging against which Christ warns is hypocritical judging. When you look at this in context, it's hypocritical judging. Judging somebody for doing something that may, maybe we're really doing ourselves, that's what Jesus warns us against. But the answer to this criticism is that, in fact, we are to judge safely within biblical parameters. When it comes to matters of doctrine, when it comes to matters of theology, we absolutely are to judge on these things safely within biblical parameters. Another criticism is this. You shouldn't name names. And some people say, well, okay, you can, you can call into question certain questionable teachings maybe, but don't ever call somebody out by their name. You know, don't, don't ever call out a Joel Osteen or a Benny Hinn or don't, don't call them out by name. The answer to this criticism is that, in fact, there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name. The Apostle Paul did so himself on several occasions and did so quite publicly. 
So there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name. Now, this is not something we do lightly, okay? You know, we shouldn't go around uh, calling somebody a false teacher if they differ with us on some relatively minor theological point. You know, maybe you're pre-trib and your friend is mid-trib. You know, don't, don't, oh, you blatant heretic, you know. (laughs) No. But when it comes to the fundamental doctrines of historical Christianity, the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, the sinless life, the atonement on the cross, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on these issues we do draw a deep line in the sand. And all the individuals that we'll be looking at here over the weekend have been teaching outright heresies for years, some of them for decades. They have been called out, and yet they remain unrepentant. They continue to distort the gospel. So uh, there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name, for warning the flock about wolves in sheep's clothing. Another criticism is this. Well, we should just follow Gamaliel's advice. Gamaliel's advice. Who was Gamaliel? Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He was Saul's instructor before Saul was converted and became known as Paul. And you remember in Acts chapter 5 that uh, uh, Peter and the apostles were in Jerusalem and they were preaching Jesus, post-resurrection of course, they were preaching Jesus in ascension, preaching Christ. They were warned by the Pharisees not to preach in the name of Jesus, but they continued to do so anyway. They were thrown into prison. God delivered them out of prison, and they continued to preach Christ, preach the gospel. So they were causing quite a stir there in Jerusalem. So the Pharisees got uh, Peter and the apostles together, and they brought them in for a meeting. They had a little powwow, and they were trying to decide what to do with these meddlesome Christians because they just would not shut up. They kept preaching in the name of Jesus. So they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with them. We read about it in Acts chapter 5. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all of the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Leave them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. And so even though a lot of people don't know to call this Gamaliel's advice, they kind of have this general approach to questionable teaching. And they'll say, well, you know, if, if these questionable teachers, if they're not of God, they won't last. You know, there'll be a flash in the, plan, in the pan. They'll have some followers, but, but they won't last. You know, they'll, they'll fade away. God will take care of them. On the other hand, if they are of God, then we should not criticize them because in so doing, we would be found fighting against God himself. So let's just kind of have a hands-off approach, laissez-faire approach here. You know, if they're not of God, they won't last. But if they are, we shouldn't oppose them. It sounds like reasonable advice, doesn't it? 
It sounds like good advice, but it's not good advice. Gamaliel's advice is bad advice for two reasons. Number one, Gamaliel was not a believer. We have no indication that Gamaliel ever came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I think it's safe to say at least at this point he was not a believer. So to follow the advice of Gamaliel is to follow the advice of a lost person. Okay? And the second reason it's bad advice is because false religions abound. It doesn't even pass the common sense test. If Gamaliel's advice were good advice, why do we still have Mormonism? Why do we still have Jehovah's Witnesses? Why do we still have Buddhism? Why do we still have Islam? Why do we still have the New Age movement? I mean, name your favorite false religion. They've been around for hundreds, some of them for thousands of years. They're clearly not of God, and yet they're still here. So when you think about it logically, it doesn't even pass the common sense test. So Gamaliel's advice is not good advice. Another criticism that you'll hear, this is a, a common one and one of their favorites. When one of these prosperity preachers comes under criticism, this is almost like their knee-jerk response. This is what they always say. Touch not my anointed. Touch not my anointed. Well, when you hear this, this is how you can respond. Okay. Take not scripture out of context because that's what they're doing. Touch not my anointed can be found in a couple of places in the Old Testament. One of them right here, Psalm 105. He permitted no man to oppress them, referring to Israel, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Touch not my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. And so a lot of the prosperity preachers take this right out of this text and they apply that to themselves. Don't criticize me. Touch not my anointed. Well, the thing is, the anointed ones refers to Israel's patriarchs and their descendants, not to today's modern preachers. Okay? It refers to Israel's patriarchs and their descendants. And the word touch actually refers to doing physical harm, not to speaking the truth. You might remember that when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he wouldn't do it. Remember? What did he do instead? He, he cut off a piece of his garment, held it up. He said, I would not touch God's anointed. In other words, I would not kill him. So we may be calling into question false teachings by false teachers, but we're not chasing Benny Hinn down the street with a baseball bat. You know, we're, we're not threatening to do anybody physical harm. So when you hear, touch not my anointed, just respond by saying, okay, take not scripture out of context. And by the way, there are at least three New Testament passages which refer to all Christians as anointed. Did you know if you are here and you are in Christ, you have been regenerated by God's Holy Spirit? Guess what? You're anointed. And you have the same anointing as does every other Christian. There are no super Christians with a super special anointing that the rest of us common schmucks just don't have. <laughs> if you are a new creature in Christ, if God has granted you repentance and faith, you're anointed. And you have the same anointing as does every other believer. The same access to God through the shed blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Another criticism is this. Well, you're just not loving. It's not loving to do this. It's not loving to tell people they're wrong. I want to show you a video clip of a man named Stephen Furtick. Stephen Furtick is pastor of Elevation Church in North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina. He's uh, a young man. He's in his early 30s. And Stephen Furtick is known for his unorthodox ways of, of doing church. He is known for having an almost palpable disdain for doctrine and theology. I mean, he just has a disdain for it. And he's very edgy. He's very unorthodox. And uh, he does not even, by his own admission, does not even understand what a church is. But he's kind of the, one of the hot things going on right now. And he's associating with T.D. Jakes and, and Rod Parsley and Joyce Meyer and, and Joel Osteen. And so he's really kind of up and coming. But he's come under some criticism, and, and rightly so. I mean, he has made some statements that are just off the wall, uh, saying he told his church one time, this is on YouTube, he, he addressed his church, he said, if you accepted his terminology, if you accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord last week in this church, he said, I hate to break it to you, last week, last Sunday, it was the last Sunday that this church was here for you. He says, we need your seat. He wants to have a church for the unchurched. I don't even know what that means. A church by definition is comprised of born-again believers. So there is no such thing as a church for the unchurched. You can have a social club, you can have a you know, social gathering or whatever, but you don't have a church. But he's come under some criticism, and rightly so. Rightly so. But he bristles at it. And so he put together a video in response to his critics. And those who criticize him are called haters. And so this video that he put together, it's entitled, Hey Haters. So if you oppose Stephen Furtick, you're a hater. You know, so he's got something to say to us. So let's watch this and, and then we'll uh, talk about it just for a second. Hey haters, I hate to break this to you, but your day is done. See, we're done with the way you sling shame and blame in the face of anyone who doesn't say what you say, see what you see, read what you read, think what you think, and do what you do, how you do what you do. But it's not about you. We're sick and tired of your pervasive propensity to pick a fight and hide the light, nitpicking every single pixel of God's brilliant picture, seeing only your side in only black and white. So scared to death of difference, shaking your fist in the face of change. I hear you hating on some people because they're not deep enough, but it makes me wonder if depth is more a measure of love than it is about whether people sync up with every idiosyncratic opinion you've got. You're full of opinions, but you're low on the spirit because the spirit is love. The spirit is peace. The spirit is kindness. And the only kind of words you ever seem to speak bring death to the hearer and leave weakness in their way. You look like a toddler drawing lines in the sand, talking about how you're defending the truth and taking a stand. 
for all your hating and pontificating and stances and games, there's no change. Fall back. It's a new day. Because we're not looking for approval from you who give no respect and never neglect the chance to complain. Are you going to criticize or create? Waste your time casting stones, breaking bones, belittling everyone you consider opposed? Are you going to exchange your hate, trade the pain of the same, embrace a new way to change the world? Honor's time has come and a new light has dawned to still the tongue of the cynic and pierce the heart of the skeptic. This generation is waiting to restore the hope of a nation. I think it may be debatable as to who is not loving. You see how he just bristles at, at any kind of criticism and he mocks those who stand up for the truth. Mocks them. You're not loving. He does not understand what love is. Dear friends, the truth of God's word is love. If you really love someone, tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. If we were to see a blind man walking towards a thousand foot cliff, if we were to see a blind man walking towards a thousand foot cliff, who among us in here would see this tragedy unfolding right before our very eyes and and yet we would sit back and say, um, you know, I don't want to offend him. You know, I, I don't want to hurt his self-esteem by telling him he's going the wrong way. I, I just, I don't, want to, I don't want to do that. And so we sit back and we say nothing and we watch him fall off the cliff and plummet to his death. Would anybody in here do that? Of course not. Every person in here, if we were to see this tragedy unfolding, we would be screaming at the tops of our lungs, Sir, you're in great danger. You're going the wrong way. We would be running up to this man. We would tackle him if we had to. You're going the wrong way. Turn around. And yet, don't we do the same thing, only with far greater consequences, when we see people not in physical danger, but in spiritual danger, going the wrong way in spiritual error, and we know the truth, say nothing about it. But with spiritual error, the consequences are eternal. Dear friends, if you really want to hate somebody, know the truth, don't tell them. That's the best way you could show hatred. If you really want to love someone, tell them the truth. If you love them, you'll tell them the truth. Now, the truth can be offensive. The gospel is offensive. The truth can offend. But we don't have to be offensive in presenting it. We don't have to be offensive. We can speak the truth and speak the truth in love, Ephesians 
But if we really love people, like we say we do, we'll tell them the truth. And you know what? Sometimes our family members can be the hardest ones to speak the truth to. Many of you know this. Sometimes our own family members are the hardest ones to talk, talk to, tell them the truth. But if we really love them, we will tell them the truth. We'll speak the truth to them in love. And you know what? The results of that, it's not up to us. It's not our responsibility how it is received. That's, that's up to God. But it is our responsibility to tell it, to speak it. So if we really love people, we'll love them enough to tell them the truth. And finally, this criticism, we hear this a lot. Well, you know, maybe they're wrong on a few things, but they're, aren't they sincere? They're so sincere. Sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. The men who flew airplanes in the World Trade Towers, very sincere. You know, lots of people are very sincere, but dear friends, you can be sincerely wrong. Sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. I hope that this has been helpful for you tonight, and this is just by way of introduction. Uh, Tomorrow morning when we come back, we will, 9 o'clock, we will get into dangerous doctrines. We'll be looking at the metaphysical cultic origins of the word faith movement. What a lot of people don't realize is that the prosperity gospel is actually rooted in the metaphysical cults. What you see on Christian television, what's being taught in many churches, is not Christian, it's cultic, wrapped in a little bit of Christian terminology. And we'll look at some of the standard doctrines which they teach that deviate from historical Christianity. And uh, so we'll get into the meat and potatoes of the word faith movement, the prosperity gospel, tomorrow morning. And as I close, let me just close with this, dear friends. The truth has a name. The truth's name is Jesus Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Salvation is not intellectual assent. It includes intellectual assent, but it is not intellectual assent in and of itself. It's not just being able to affirm a few Bible facts. Genuine conversion is when God grants repentance and He grants faith in Jesus Christ. It's not being able to win a Bible drill. It's, it's not being able to you know, put on a, a good show or you know, talk the, you know, use some Christian terminology. God granted me genuine repentance and junior faith as a preacher doing these seminars you can't repent on your own God grants it God grants genuine repentance he grants genuine faith your pastor can't save you if we have some Catholics listening maybe or or here or listening your priest cannot save you you cannot go to your priest and confess your sins and have him absolve you of your sins. Your priest is just as sinful, if not more so, than you are. Man can't do it. God must do it. God grants it. It's, it's not just intellectual sin. Yes, I know I'm a sinner. Almost everybody knows that intellectually. It is when God's Holy Spirit blows on someone and grants them repentance, grants them that godly sorrow over sin. Grants them faith in Christ. There is salvation 
in no one else. If you're not certain of where you are in Christ, maybe you're listening to these uh, CDs or listening on the Internet. If you're not certain of where you are, if you don't have those evidences of conversion that we spoke about earlier in this session, if you don't have a godly sorrow over your sin, if you don't have a love for the Word of God, if you don't have a love for the brethren, if there has not been a genuine change in your life, a change that you cannot explain on your own, if that's not there, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Get before God and ask Him, beg Him to grant you genuine repentance, genuine faith in Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, your word is all sufficient for us. It is authoritative. It is, it is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, genuine conversion is so much more than just mental assent, intellectual assent. Genuine conversion is something that is solely by you, given, given by you, and it is, becomes evidenced in our lives when our lives are changed, when we have that godly sorrow over sin, when we bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And Father, as your gospel has gone out, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict of sin, righteousness, in judgment, convict of the truth of the gospel. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, we are in Christ. We do belong to you. We pray that this would be a time of equipping, a time of enrichment in your word. Lord, may we be mindful of the many, many winds of doctrine blowing about all of us. And uh, Lord, may we be good students of your word so that we will be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us so that we will be ready to communicate your truth to people in a cogent, uh, reasonable way. And we trust that your spirit would, um, would water those seeds that are planted. And these things we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.